This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, the bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Thomas Ling, digital editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Now, if you've tried to introduce a new healthy habit into your life, you'll know that long-term behavioural change is far from easy and you wouldn't be alone. According to one poll, less than a third of people in the UK kept their New Year's resolution last year. So why are forming habits so difficult? And how do you create one that will truly stick? To discuss all this and more, I'm joined by neuroscientist Dr. Gabia Tolakita. She's a lecturer in psychology at Sheffield Hallam University and author of the book, Why the F Can't I Change? Hello, thank you for joining us. Hi, Thomas. Nice to be here. So for many people wanting to make a change, whether it's going to the gym more, eating healthier, stop looking at your phone so much in the morning like me. Changing a behavior is really, really hard. But why is this? First of all, to change the behavior, we need to develop new networks in the brain that will take care of a new behavior. Whenever we do, whether it's eating sugary snacks, some ruminating thoughts or procrastination habits, we do those because we have already developed strong networks called brain highways in the brain that almost form a default behaviors. In order to change that, we need to form competing networks uh, that would allow us to do different things. And also we need to weaken those default default networks. But before we can do that, we firstly need to realize what are the root causes of this old behavior. Because always with any bad habit, there is always something we are getting out of it. 
And when we form new habits and new behaviors, we want to make sure that we're getting exactly the same rewards from new behavior. So let's imagine somebody is procrastinating and want to be more efficient at work. I, I don't know anybody who can who might do that. And if you if somebody wanted to be uh, more effective with with their work, and they firstly might, might want to observe when do they fall into the procrastination habits. Uh, is it stress? Is it lack of clarity? Is it sleep deprivation that is causing this? Uh, and let's imagine if it's stressful situation and procrastinating or looking, going on Facebook or TikTok reduces stress momentarily. What could be other ways to reduce stress? So one of the best ways to reduce stress is breathing exercises or doing mindfulness meditation for five minutes. So if, if instead of going on Facebook, uh, let's imagine me or you, Thomas, start, you know, stop right now, whatever we're doing, and we do breathing exercise and then go back to the task. So the habit of uh, reducing stress by procrastination is gradually getting weaker and weaker the more we practice that. And the networks that are paired up with stress, browsing Facebook or TikTok, get, get weaker and they, they have a stress trigger uh, doing breathing exercise or mindful meditation gets stronger and stronger the more we repeat it. So we need to address both things when we want to change behaviors. The root cause of this old habit and also building and gradually strengthening new brain networks that take care of a new behavior. So say if someone's goal was to go to the gym most mornings, what new behavioral habits would they have to set out? First of all, we need to assess what's the current situation. Is going to the gym every morning a realistic habit for somebody? If this person is going to the gym zero times a week, going to the gym five days a week is too, too big change too soon. So we want to start with small steps. Uh, the reason being, in the brain, we have a brain area called amygdala. Amygdala is quite an ancient region that we find in other mammals, such as rodents, dogs, cats, cows, and so on. And this brain region absolutely hates change. It hates novelty. And when we introduce too much change too soon, amygdala creates feeling of anxiety or sometimes even anger that momentarily makes us think in an irrational manner and it pushes us to act the old way. So amygdala doesn't understand that going to the gym will make you feel stronger and healthier ultimately. What amygdala sees is like suddenly your behavior is very different and it doesn't like it. So you want to introduce small steps. So is this amygdala effect is this why it's normally best to only set one goal for yourself? Multiple reasons. Uh, amygdala is one of the reasons. So we, we don't want to trigger amygdala with, with our New Year's resolutions. But also, when we try to change too many things at the same time, we drain the energy of our bodies and brains, and there isn't enough really left to take care of all the all the new uh, habits. So let me tell you a little bit about the brain region which is required for creating 
new habits, but also for willpower. And that region is called prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex is at the very front of your brain. It's the newest addition to the brain. And that's what makes us humans is the region that um, takes care of willpower, decision-making, prioritizing, understanding what's good for you, delaying gratification, long-term planning, and so on. So this region is required to make a, a, a challenging new goal, but also to stick to it. And if we if we give too many tasks for prefrontal cortex, what we see is so-called ego depletion. Ego depletion is the state when we the prefrontal cortex is overwhelmed and doesn't can't do any of those tasks tasks efficiently. Also, prefrontal cortex requires enormous amounts of energy. And of course, when, when we are replenished and, and fresh after a Christmas break, we might have that, that energy available. But when we go back to work or school or whatever, whatever activities, uh, the listeners might be engaged in, we might not have enough resources for prefrontal cortex to take care of so many different new habits. So when you're talking about our bodies being drained of energy and energy depletion what exactly is the energy there is this simply just calories that we ingest or is it something else it's a little bit more complex so calories yes uh so so brain and body needs energy in the form of glucose that's what the cells require and we get glucose for all sorts of uh, nutritious foods and delicious foods we eat but in addition to that prefrontal cortex uh, needs a time to uh, replenish and restore neurotransmitter balance. So when neurons talk to each other, they use chemical messengers called neurotransmitters and they get used up. A brain that needs time to produce them and reload them in the structures, neuronal structures called synapses to be ready again. So it's a little bit more complex than just, you know, like, oh, I'll have another chocolate bar and then I can do new, new habits. It, it, brain does need uh, downtime and quite a lot of downtime. How much downtime? Well, it depends what you do and depends what you, what your activity is. It depends also on your neurodiversity profile. So overall good, like sort of rule of thumb is that we can do about four to six hours of prefrontal cortex dependent activities a day. Four hours if we are sort of, if it is relatively stressful environment and six hours if we take frequent breaks and replenish and recover. So when it comes to behavioral change, what are the most common pitfalls? One of the most common things I see with my readers of my book and and my previous clients is trying to change too much too soon. It's the second one being changing is changing things that we think we should change as opposed to what we truly want to change. So having incorporated values from other people or societal norms, as going to the gym is a very classical one. You know, I, I had a client uh, recently who was like, oh, I should go to the gym more often. I was like, okay, do you, do you enjoy going to the gym? What associations do you have around going to the gym? And, and I was like, actually, I hate going to the gym. It feels like a torture to me. So that just tells that it's something that we we um, learn from either societal norms or other other p- incorporate other people's voices in in our head. Um, so figuring out what what you want to change. But third common pitfall is associating change with pain. 
So if you're trying to eat healthy, yeah, but you truly like pastries and chocolate and things that are quite sugary and very delicious and elicit enormous amounts of dopamine in our reward centers, instead of thinking, okay, well, to eat healthier, it means to endure some pain or lack of pleasure. Uh, that's one way of looking at it, but we are much less likely to do new behavior. But if you write down the huge list of benefits of eating healthier and try to elicit as much dopamine as you can with a healthier eating habit, so for example, taking time to prepare really nice meals that would be healthier options such as smoothie instead of pastry, that would still be equally delicious, but perhaps a healthy alternative and taking taking time to really create food that tastes equally as good, but is healthier is, is required. So, so we do need dopamine to make, to make a lasting change and to have motivation to change. So when you talk about this list, is this a list that people should write out every day? No, it's enough to write it out once physically, have it written or write it on the computer and print it and have it somewhere visible. I usually recommend to write about 50 reasons of why you want to change. So 550. 5-0. And if you if you struggle to come up even with 10, it means that probably that's not something you should change. So why is it that people can maintain a new habit or a new behavior for a little while, but then this goes away? So for instance, the gym is often flooded with new people in January, but then this goes away as people's motivation wanes. Why does that motivation wane? A lot of times we make a start in a new habit where, when we're in a good place of mind, when we're in a reasonably good emotional state and when we have time for it. Now, when the work gets busier, kids get ill, or we get ill, uh, we get in an anxious state or depressed state, suddenly there is not enough resources in the brain to deal with that. And that naturally, uh, then we, we take care of what's urgent as opposed to nice to have. So we revert to the more survival state as opposed to thriving state. And, and we need to allow us ourselves to do so. I think it's one of the biggest misconceptions that once we change a habit, it sticks with us. That's not true. Once we change this, the habit, yes, it sticks to us with us for a while, but if it is not an essential thing, when we're going through the phases in life, when we are struggling with something, whether it's a workload, whether it's family situation, whether it's mental or emotional well-being or physical well-being for that matter, it's not only natural, but also essential for us to drop things that are not important at that given moment of time, that are not essential for our survival. And then when we get in a better place with those core, crucial, essential well-being issues or, or demands that are placed on us, then we gradually can come back to those, those habits. So I think we need to be aware when it's a good time to, for those nice-to-have habits and when that's not feasible. So is there a way to make habits stick or should we just accept that it's not always going to be possible? I think just accepting what's realistic is, is crucial. And strangely, when people are much more kind and compassionate to themselves about changing habits, usually they, they can revert back to the, to the good uh, new habits 
quicker after the downtime. If we have an idea that, oh, we should stick to new habits no matter what, that produces a lot of stress and puts us much more in a middle dominant way of thinking. And when we accept that sometimes that's just not feasible and there are other priorities, it usually helps us to go back to the, to the good habits after we had that time to deal with any emergencies we had to much, much quicker because we don't have any associated uh, negative emotions around it. So imagine somebody who has set a goal to go to the gym in the morning. They wake up, but they really, really don't want to go. As a neuroscientist, what would you advise them to do in that morning? Depending on the cause of why they don't want to go. If they don't want to go because they just rather sleeping in bed and are feeling relatively lazy, then I would recommend looking at the list of 50, 50 benefits of going to the gym. And if, if somebody wakes up and doesn't want to go because more, they struggle in the mornings with energy levels, maybe going in the morning is not the best time for them either. So really kind of firstly making the assessment of what is the best time for this habit is, is very important. A lot of people aren't very good at exercising in the mornings. If they really don't want to go because they are in a depressed-like state, Maybe going to the gym is not the best option. Maybe replacing it with other physical activities, such as going outside for a little bit, going out to the cafe to have breakfast instead of staying in, in the house. Uh, so it has to be uh, situational of what's the best, best thing to do in that, in that scenario. So you've spoken about how writing a list of reasons why you want to do a certain activity could be beneficial. Are there any other key tools that you recommend people using to changing a behavior or starting off a new habit? Yeah, there is a few. So, so first of all, writing 50 benefits of a new habit uh, is good start. But second, if you want to go further, having a calendar or a or map or something visual, the way to visualize when you actually have done it. It's a little bit like, you know, having golden stars for children for when they've done something. It seems to work for adults pretty well as well. And when you collect a certain number of golden stars, rewarding yourself with something that you truly want. So for example, if you went to the gym 10 times, buying yourself a new t-shirt or some, some new audio book, whatever, whatever might work for somebody. Uh, in your great book, uh, you write about activity-dependent plasticity. Could you explain what that is? Activity-dependent brain plasticity is just a fancy word to describe that your brain networks are constantly changing based on what you do most often. There are different forms of activity-dependent brain plasticity. Uh, so one is the networks, old networks that you have been using all the time, getting stronger and stronger over time as you keep using them, such as, for example, if your brain networks of driving a car, getting stronger if you keep on driving a car. Now, imagine you stopped driving a car and just started taking public transport. Those networks that were in charge of driving a car start getting weaker over time because you no longer use them. Uh, imagine you decide that instead of taking public transport, you want to restart using bicycle and you haven't cycled for maybe 20 years. So now brain uh, regions that are in charge of riding a bike start getting stronger over time because you're using those regions again. So that's also another form of uh, activity-dependent brain plasticity. 
Also, in one region within hippocampal formation, a region called dentite gyrus, we get new neurons born, uh, which is called neurogenesis. That is also activity-dependent brain plasticity, as it depends on what we do. So how can we increase our neuroplasticity to help form new habits? That's a great question. So, so there is a few things we can do. Some things are kind of obvious. If we want to create strong networks, doing those activities more often. So regularity as opposed to duration seems to be important. So if you want to become really, I don't know, proficient at juggling, uh, juggling five minutes a day every day is better than juggling for an hour once a week. So doing the activity often is, 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 seems to be a good way of strengthening, creating new networks and strengthening them. But also there are some things that are much less obvious. So physical exercise seems to increase neurogenesis and increase the levels of BDNF in the brain. And BDNF is, is, is important so-called neurotrophic factor that helps brains to reshape and reform the networks. And just gentle aerobic physical exercise such as jogging, speedy walking, gardening, uh, cycling, um, increase levels of BDNF in the brain and increase brain plasticity. Now, the third thing we can do is having loving and caring relationships in our life. Those relationships increase uh, oxytocin in our brain. And oxytocin is both a hormone and a neurotransmitter. And oxytocin protects the brain plasticity from negative effects of stress. So when we're experiencing stressful situations, brain plasticity is reduced. But if we have enough oxytocin in our bodies and brains, then that is being kept at the normal normal level. So it doesn't change when we experience stressful situations. So having good friendships, good romantic relationships, resonant working relationships, uh, or taking care of other people, having a pet, all of those activities increase oxytocin and help us to maintain uh, good brain plasticity levels. So when you say that exercise is quite a good way to boost your neuroplasticity, does that mean going to the gym is quite a good goal to pick? Any form of physical exercise. Uh, it doesn't really have to be um, going to the gym. It doesn't even have to be structured exercise. Just being physically active is sufficient. So aiming for 10,000 steps a day, for example, is a good goal as you can get 10,000 steps a day without actually going for official walk or going officially to the workout, just sort of getting around your day and trying to be as active as you can and trying to increase your activity levels that fit your life and what, what the tasks you're trying to achieve anyway. What should somebody do if they fail their goal after, say, two weeks? I should restrain from using the word fail. We, we, we need to look back. Why? And, and this is a very important discussion to have. We need to really have a thing. Why did I pick this goal in the first place? Was that a good goal for me? So maybe the person didn't fail the goal. Maybe the goal failed the person. Okay, so this is a weird way to look at it. But we often fail in, in the comas, the goals that actually aren't well suited for us. So we need to replan and choose a goal that actually is fits you as a person, that fits your life as it is. Because a lot of times we try to be who we aren't and set the goals based 
around that. And inevitably, not only will fail the goals, but we are failing ourselves by setting those goals and not accepting ourselves as we are and the things that are truly important to us. That was Dr. Gabby Atulakita, author of the book, Why the F Can't I Change? Insights from a Neuroscientist to Show That You Can. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as your preferred app store. You can, of course, also find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.